If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 21st chapter, the Gospel of Luke, as we continue our study through the Word. So you remember that Jesus has now made uh, his approach from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now he makes his triumphal entry and and remember that he weeps over the nation at their rejection. He heads up to the Temple Mount and to the temple itself. And there you'll remember he cleanses uh, the court of the Gentiles of the money changers and the merchants and, and decries that this is my father's house is to be a house uh, of um, prayer. And, and he departs and withdraws. And, and every day now, of Holy Week during Passover, he is continuing to come into the temple, into the porches and the colonnades, and he is preaching and teaching there in the temple precinct. And, and you'll remember that the religious leaders were frustrated. They felt handcuffed by Jesus. They desperately wanted to destroy him, to get their hands on him. But, but how to do that when, when he is so popular and all of the people are around. And, and so they seek to publicly humiliate him. And time after time, different groups come to confront him with a, a cleverly laid trap that only seems to backfire on those that are seeking to entrap Jesus. The first group that came were the chief priests and the scribes. And they came wanting to know by what authority had he cleansed the temple. And you remember how Jesus just turned that question right back on them. By what authority was John the Baptist uh, operating his ministry. And you remember they refused to, to answer that question. And, and the next group that came then were the Herodians. And they came asking now whether it was lawful to pay taxes or not. And you remember how Jesus asked for a coin and asked whose, whose imprint is that? And and it was Caesar's. And he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are, are God's. And, and you remember that he gives the parable of the wicked landowners, the judgment and parable upon them. And, and they recognize that Jesus was speaking about them. We saw last time how the Sadducees came and they asked a question about the resurrection, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus told them that you know not the word of God or the power of God and, and talk to them about the resurrection, that in the resurrection, God has a, a whole new way of connecting us together in community and and then showed them from the writings of Moses uh, that the doctrine of the resurrection is contained even within the first five books. And, but then afterwards, nobody dared ask any questions of Jesus. And, and then Jesus asked a, a question, a question that was designed to lead them into revelation, to lead them into truth. And that is the identity of Messiah. They felt that Messiah was a man. Their concept of Messiah was that, uh, that he was a man that was highly anointed uh, of God. But Jesus is not a man that's been anointed by God. He is fully God and fully man. Deity, incarnate, that, that is Messiah. And so Jesus goes to a Psalm of David to, 
help them to press in to that truth. And, and he says to them, how is it that if the Messiah is, is the son of David, and you'll remember that son of David was a messianic title. Remember that when Jesus was making his triumphal entry, they, they were crying, son of David. You'll remember how the blind man in Jericho decried, Jesus, son of David. And, and so son of David was a messianic title. He would come through the lineage of David. That was the promise that was given to David when David wanted to build the temple. And, and you remember that God said, you can't build a temple for me, but I will build a house for you from your descendant. The Messiah is going to come. And so he takes him to the psalm that David writes, and he says, how is it that in the psalm where David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. How can the descendant of David, how can David refer to one of his descendants as Lord? And so here showing that, that he wasn't just a, a descendant, but that he was also, in fact, much more than a descendant, that, that he was deity himself. And and we're going to see that Jesus is going to continue to press forwards uh, now. The cross is looming right before him. More and more we see Jesus and talking about his second coming now, preparing his disciples now for his departure. He has been telling them that he is going to be betrayed and turned over into the hands of men and crucified and raised on the third day. But they don't have ears to hear it. They're still not. But Jesus continues to equip them and prepare them, even though they don't have comprehension right now. Those words are going into their hearts and then the Holy Spirit will bring them to remembrance. So oftentimes in our own lives, we read the word of God. We don't always understand the word of God, but the Holy Spirit then will bring to remembrance. He will help us, instruct us, and teach us and, and guide us. And so important to continue. Just keep following the Lord and, and watch the way that, that he ties up everything together. And, and so we're gonna see that Jesus now is going to be in the courts and it's Passover. The, the temple is crazy busy. There's a million worshipers that have come and, and every day they're bringing their gifts and their offerings and they're coming to the temple. There's great excitement. The nation is excited. It's one of their great feasts and everybody is in a, a celebratory mood and, and Jesus is going to watch a widow give a gift to God and he's going to comment on it and you Use it as an opportunity to, to instruct uh, on giving and how God loves a cheerful giver, not a begrudging giver, but, uh, but one who offers uh, their gifts uh, as an expression of love. And he's going to talk about her sacrificial gift that she puts in. And, and then afterwards, uh, Jesus is, is going to begin what is known as the Olivet Discourse. He is going to talk about the temple and he is going to talk about the future of the temple what's going to happen to the temple and this is going to shock the disciples when when he tells them that this temple is going to be destroyed and they instantly have questions about that that is just alarming and shocking to them and Jesus is going to begin to talk about to the his second coming and and then he's going to kind of pause 
does and bring it back to equip them and prepare them for what is coming next for them. Jesus is going to be crucified and his earthly ministry and time with them is going to come to an end. And they need to be ready now to stand on their own and to continue in what God had called them to do. I can't imagine what that must have been like to have been with Jesus and then Jesus is gone. How cool would that have been to be with someone who had the answer in every situation to every problem was in complete mastery over the weather, over demons, over all authority had been given unto him. And to see that authority and power on display up close and personal and then he's gone. And now we're here without him. And, and now they were going to have to pick up the pieces and, and move forwards into the tremendous, exciting program of God that they had been invited into, not just as observers, but now as the chief workers of the building of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is going to kind of minister to them and give them some clarity and kind of strengthen them in their resolve of what is going to come next uh, after Jesus departs. So let's jump in here. Luke's gospel, chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Jesus is there in the temple. And so outside of the temple were the courts and the porches and the colonnades of the temple. There was the court of the Gentile. That was the outermost area of the temple mount. But then the next area, you came through a gate and you were into the women's court. And the women were allowed into there. And here were all of the porches at the far end of the women's court was then the court that led into the men's court. And then behind that was the priestly court. And then behind that was where the, the temple proper sat. There were colonnades and, <laughs> and porches and, and all types of beautiful structures that were there. And it was in these porches and structures where the tithe boxes were located, where the people would come and, and they would bring their gifts to the Lord. Some of the boxes were set up for the shekel tax, the, the temple tax that all people would give. But then also there were the free will offering boxes where people just came and brought and gave their gift to God. And so the wealthy, they came, it says, and Jesus watched as they, as they approached their box and they made their gifts to the temple and to the Lord. And how beautiful that is when, when we bring our gifts to the Lord. And, and he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So Mites, they were the smallest denomination of the currency at that time. A denarius was the equivalent of a day's salary. And so if we would consider a day's salary to be $100, make it easy, $100 for a day laborer, then a mite was one one-hundredth of a denarius. And so it would be one one-hundredth of $100 be a dollar. And so a, a mite was a dollar. She had two dollars. And so she came and she put two dollars into, uh, into the offering for the Lord. And so he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. 
For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. So we have this widow, and she wasn't a rich widow, she was a poor widow. Widows and orphans, uh, these are considered to be the most vulnerable representation of society. She had no husband to provide for her, to be her covering. She was uh, alone and she didn't sit on a... uh, on great wealth to be able to supply for her in her old age. She now was impoverished. She was poor. She was down to her last $2. And what did she do with her last $2? She comes to the temple and gives them as a gift to God. Now, others had certainly put in more, but they took it from the abundance that they had. But this now was all that she had. And she comes and, and she gives her last $2. It's a, it's a picture of sacrificial giving, of how she was just showing this incredible surrender of self to God. God, here, I love you. I want you to, to know how much I love you. I'm giving you my last $2. It showed her commitment to God and and her willingness ultimately to trust in God's provision for her life. God, I trust you that that you will take care of me and I can rest in that. And so so she is able to give that that provision that she had to the Lord as, as a love offering, as a gift. Jesus is moved by her sacrificial giving because Jesus is the ultimate example of sacrificial giving. He was on his way to the cross to offer himself up as a sacrifice. And no greater love has a man than this than he would offer up his life for a friend. He was about to demonstrate the greatest act of sacrificial giving in the history of mankind. And so this woman's heart now resonated with him as she now demonstrates sacrificial giving. It was interesting. She had two mites. She could have given God one and kept one for herself, kept one dollar for herself. She could have gone to McDonald's and ordered off of the dollar menu, you know, something. But she doesn't hold back half. She just gives it to the Lord. And here we see the the sacrificial love that she had in her giving. And so the Lord comments that. And and as they continue, there is talk of the beautiful temple, the spectacular impression that the temple always made. When you traveled to Jerusalem and and you would start to approach the city, rising above the city walls was the temple itself. It, it, It was impressive. It was gigantic. It was a skyscraper in the in the line. It rose seven stories high, over 70 feet tall. You could see the temple from throughout Jerusalem and from uh, outside and and you remember that Herod had undergone a massive remodeling of uh, the uh, 
temple itself. It, it had begun 20 years before Christ was even born. And Herod was doing it to curry favor with the people. You remember that Herod was appointed by the Romans as king, and he was an Edomite. An Edomite means that he was a descendant of Esau. Remember Esau and Jacob were brothers and how God said, Jacob I have preferred over Esau. Jacob becomes one of the patriarchs in the lineage and from him the 12 tribes and the nation is born. And now suddenly we have a descendant of Esau ruling over the descendants of Jacob. And so that made Herod insecure because he knew that he didn't have authority to be sitting in the position that his authority wasn't from God, it was from the Romans. And so there was always a, a, an uneasiness with which Herod had an insecurity about the position that he was established in. So he tried to curry favor with the, the people and, and the way that he chose to do that was with massive building and projects. And, and so one of them was the temple itself. The temple that had stood in Herod's time was the second temple. The first temple that had been built was glorious. That was Solomon's temple. And you remember how David had taken all of the wealth, though he wasn't able to build the temple himself. He sets aside the gold and the silver and all and, and the plans for it. Solomon is the one that actually undertakes the construction project, and, and it was absolutely spectacular. But you remember when the nation of Israel fell into sin and idolatry that they were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and Solomon's temple had been plundered and destroyed. You remember that after the 70 years of captivity that, that they came back and rebuilt the temple, the second temple. That was underneath Ezra and Zerubbabel that, uh, that led in the construction of that. And, and that was the second temple. Now, the second temple sat upon the Temple Mount. But the Temple Mount rose uh, up uh, from three sides. Uh, uh, there is valleys that are around it. And the Temple Mount itself was fairly small. And so what Herod did was that he built these huge retaining walls around and then filled that all in with dirt so that he enlarged this temple mount to this tremendous area. Today, when you see pictures of the Jews that are praying at the western wall, that giant wall that's there, that's the retaining wall that Herod built that he filled in with dirt to now create this huge terrace up on top, the, what is now today the Temple Mount. And then he began to build. I mean, he began to just beautify the temple itself. It says that he put gold, overlaid gold all over it. And then he faced it off with these, with these white stones where there wasn't gold. There was white marble that was polished and that was so white that it was said that when you approached Jerusalem and saw the Temple Mount, you thought it was covered with snow. The reflection of the gold was so brilliant. Josephus records that in noontime when the sun would strike it, it would be blinding in its glory. But it wasn't just this enormous temple. It was the porches and the colonnades that, that also Herod built. They were enormous. The hallway, one of the porches, the hallways that ran, had 40-foot columns all along it. They were carved out of one solid piece of stone, each of them. And it was 1,500 feet long. Can you imagine a 1,500-foot 
long corridor with these 40-foot columns and arches that were on top of it. That's five football fields back to back to back to back to back. And then there were the other porches and colonnades that were all around. And, and so it was this massive construction, this, the, the Temple Mount that was there. And, and every year when you came up to go to Passover into the feast, you would see the newest thing that had just happened up on the, the Temple Mount. The construction had started 20 years before Christ was born and had gone all the way through in Christ's life. And, and so this was a, a never-ending construction project that, that was going on. It would continue all the way after the, the death of Christ, all the way till the year A.D. 63. It would finally be finished. The temple would be finished seven years before Titus and his army came in and destroyed but every year when you came up to feast when you came up to the celebrations you would just be overwhelmed with the temple itself and and here were the disciples now as they as they were looking at the temple there in Jerusalem and it says in verse 5 then as some spoke of the temple how it was adorned with beautiful stones and and donations he said these things which you see the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down Jesus suddenly says to them this unbelievable edifice, this, this temple is going to be utterly destroyed. And not just destroyed, absolutely annihilated to the point where not even one single stone is going to, is going to be standing upon another. The shock that th those words had to have hit the disciples with what? The, the temple, our temple? It was not just a building. It wasn't just this huge skyscraper, but, but it marked their national identity, gods and people and his presence here in the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah and glory of God. It, it was the reminder to them of God's presence, of God's promise, of God's protection. And now you're saying that this is going to be completely decimated and Instantly, it created two questions in the, in the heart of the disciples. When is that going to happen? And how is that going to happen? What is going to lead up to that? Is there going to be this gigantic war that's going to take place? What, what are the things that are going to lead up to the, the destruction? Is it going to happen swiftly? Is it going to come without, without warning? Or, uh, or is there going to be a buildup to the, to the destruction? When is this going to happen and how is this going to happen? It was 9-11 when we watched, when I watched, in absolute disbelief. As first that first tower went down and then the second tower went down. Where we had been attacked by terrorists. And, and those twin towers that fell in New York, they, they were more than just buildings. They were a representation of, of our commerce and strength. And, and they were attacked uh, for that very purpose. 
And they wounded our soul. But that was nothing in comparison to telling the nation of Israel that their temple was going to be absolutely decimated. And so the disciples are, are incredulous, shocked, stunned. They, they can't believe the words that, that Jesus is saying to them. And so they, they ask, uh, now, when are these things going to take place? Verse 7, so they asked him, saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And, and Jesus begins then to, uh, to enter into what is now known commonly as the Olivet Discourse. And, and Jesus begins to talk prophetically now about the things that are going to come and about his second coming. And he said, verse 8, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near it, and therefore do not go after them. Jesus had given the parable of the absentee landowner and how he had departed and went away, and then he came back at a later time. And, and here we see that Jesus now is once again talking about after his departure when he is going to return. And there are going to be many people during that absentee time when Christ is not here upon the earth that are going to rise up and say that they are the Christ. And we've had many false messiahs since the time of Jesus. And there are others that say, hey, he's over here. And Jesus says, do not be drawn uh, away and go after them. According to the scriptures, the one clear sign of Christ's return will be his unmistakable appearance in the clouds, and that will be seen by all people. I remember years back when there was this tremendous chase scene that took place by the police on the highways of California, and every single news station had the, the video going of the chase scene that was, went on for hours and hours on the, the California freeways. And, but I thought, that's nothing compared to when Jesus returns because all the cameras are going to be up and on every single news station, they're going to be looking at Jesus who is coming in the sky. CNN is going to report on Jesus' return uh, from heaven. And, and it makes me laugh because no doubt they'll have expert commentary, you know, uh, coming in, you know, who is this and what can this mean? And, you know, and all of these different things will be taking place. It will be a universe public event that all people are going to see. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Matthew chapter 24 records, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And that all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When Jesus returns, it will be a global event that will transpire. And so Jesus says, you don't need to worry about identifying the Messiah in his second coming. 
He says, but when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Jesus was declaring that there would be great wars that would come upon the face of the earth. And don't think that when the earth goes into these wars that that the war is going to end suddenly with the coming of God, that he is going to intervene in these wars or that he is going to show up at the end of the final battle. We saw the incredible devastation that World War I brought upon the face of the earth. When the theater of war drew in all the nations of the earth and, and mankind now battled to, like they had never ever fought in the history of the world, only to be followed by the second world war where once again the nations of the world were brought into a tremendous conflict, but this time now with much more sophisticated weaponry and even into the nuclear age. And so Jesus said that there would be these great wars, but, but those wars weren't going to be the sign that now Christ is going to come right at the, the end of that or rescue mankind when it looked like man was going to annihilate himself off of the face of the earth. War is not going to be the, the sign that the Lord is going to return. He says, but the end will not come immediately. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There are going to be wars and wars are going to continue to to be a part of the history of the world. And they will continue even through to the time when Christ returns. He says, but, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences and There will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. There's there's going to be earthquakes and famines and pestilences. We see that the earth itself is going to begin to tremble. That it is going to become unstable. We're we're going to see great earthquakes. We're going to see climate shifts. Famines are going to take place. These are all parts of the the signs. Today we hear in the news all the time about global warming. And you see one of the the things that they talk about with global warming is that it's changing the weather patterns and that it's changing where the the rain clouds are going and that over the bread baskets uh, of the countries that have been so productive are are starting now to not have the rain that that's going to decrease the the productivity of the supply of food and and you're hearing about these types of of warnings that are taking place we're seeing tremendous national disasters and and earthquakes and fires and and these types of things that are happening and and Jesus said all of these things are going to to happen to set the stage stage now for his return. It says that there's going to be tremendous pestilence, great plagues that are going to break out. Great plagues. Last month in the news, the the scientific community was shocked when the Chinese doctor had announced that he had genetically modified an embryo, a human embryo, and implanted it into a mother that bore twins. And, and the scientific community was, was abhorred when he presented his information, the bioethics uh, now that had been violated as now the genetic structure of a human being had been 
been changed, had been altered. And, and now that embryo was, was placed in and, and this artificially altered human being had now been born, a pair of twins, actually. The scientist's intention behind it was to create a, a, a person who was more resistant to the HIV virus by modifying the CCR genome. But other scientists warned that, that while that modification would in fact increase the resistance to that disease, it would make that person much more susceptible to other diseases, West Nile virus among them. And, and the, the ethics and the bioethics behind this, not only is that child modified, but every offspring also will be modified by the modification that had happened. And the concerns of changing the genetic coding in people is that it would invite new diseases never before seen that suddenly now could, could take and could threaten. Others are concerned about those that might start to use the, these genetic modifications to create a super race or to create larger and stronger soldiers and to be able to, in the hands of, uh, of immoral people, there is, there is no potential that has limitation to what they can possibly do. And suddenly now a, a box has been opened up upon our earth that had up until this point been sealed. Jesus said that there is going to, to be tumultuous times that are going to enter in and engage the world prior to his coming. And, and certainly we are seeing the fulfillments of those happen in our world before us. He went on to say, but before all these things, he pulls them back. Those are things that are coming for future generations. But now let's talk about you. He says, before these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. He tells the apostles, you're headed into persecution. Just want to let you know that. <laughs> That's the weather forecast. <laughs> it's going to be rocky. It's going to be rough. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be persecuted. They're going to bring you before the authorities. And when we look back at the record of the history of the church and the book of Acts, we see Peter and John arrested. We see Peter arrested. We see Stephen standing before the, uh, the Sanhedrin. <coughs> we see Paul standing before uh, Herod and Festus and ultimately before the, uh, the emperor. We we see the fulfillment of these very things, but, but he says that it's going to turn out as an occasion for testimony, that, that they now would have opportunity to declare the things that they had seen and experienced, and it would go forth as a testimony. He says, therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. 
You remember when Stephen stands and gives his defense before the Sanhedrin, how it says that his face lit up like the face of an angel, that he spoke with a power, a dunamos, a dynamite, and with wisdom with which the Sanhedrin was not able to resist. The chief aim of man is to glorify God. Your chief purpose of why you're here upon the face of the earth is after you are connected to God is to reflect his glory to the people around you. To just simply tell your story. You remember that John and, and Peter, after the lame man was healed, the beggar on the steps of the temple, and they asked, by what power and authority did this happen? And they investigate that, and they said, by the power and authority of Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way. You remember that they said, you're not to mention his name anymore, and we forbid you from going and, and declaring his name. And and you remember how Peter answered? He says, how can we not talk about the things that we have seen and the things that we have witnessed and experienced? We're only telling people about the things that, that we actually saw happen in our lives. And we have to tell people the things that, that we have seen. And they warned them sternly and, uh, and kicked them out because they had no other authority. You see, God isn't asking you to go and make up stories about him. He's just asking you to tell what you've experienced of him to the people that you come in contact with. What's your story about God's glory? And to, and to be able to just share God's goodness here upon the, the face of the earth. And, and it starts just in the, the areas that we have contact with people. It says that he who's faithful in the little things to him, more will be given. And know this, that any time that you're about to declare the goodness of God, God is going to help you do that. He's going to give you the, the boldness and the words and the wisdom. It's amazing how when you go to minister to somebody, a brother or a sister that's hurting in the, in the Lord, and you're just trying to comfort or talk to them or, or counsel, it's amazing how suddenly God gives you like this wisdom of what to say to them. And even scriptures start to pop up in your head to share with them. Some, you didn't even know that you remembered them, but, but the Lord brings them to your remembrance at just such a time as... As this, why? Because you are doing the very thing that you were created for, is to point people to God and to tell others about his goodness and his greatness. And God will help you to be able to do that, whether you're in one-on-one -on -one or you're standing before the Supreme Court or the President of the United States. His glory, reflected now upon mankind and told by his people. If God's people don't tell his story, who's going to tell <laughs> his story? They will not be able to contradict or resist in verse 16. And what will be the result? He says, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So there's the job opportunity. Any applicants? Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you right now that there's a heck of a retirement program uh, uh, that the job does uh, give. 
It's not going to be easy sledding here upon the face of the earth. There are people that are not going to want to hear what you have to say about God, that are going to try and shut you down and marginalize you and minimize you and, and move you out of mainstream. That, it's absolutely true. We operate against the, the prince of this earth who marshals the evil and forces to try and, and keep the light down. But greater is he who's in us than he who is in the earth. But know this, it's not going to be a, a walk in the park. It will be difficult. He says, but ultimately, verse 18, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. Not a, a hair of your head <laughs> shall perish. I was brushing my hair, and I'm like, oh, there's a hair. <laughs> it doesn't mean that not a hair on your head will be lost, it means that not a hair on your head will perish. It's the same word Jesus says when he says that for God so loved the world that, uh, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so he, he lays out now the, the future for not only the nations and for the church but also for the apostles themselves and he says, and by your patience, possess your souls. It's not easy when, when the world is moving against you and when you are experiencing consequences in, in your life because of his name's sake. Has Christ, and following after him, has that cost you anything? Have you experienced consequences in your life already? Have you lost friendships or business associates? Have you been passed over for promotions or, uh, or lost relationships, maybe even with family members because of your Christian faith and, uh, and your love of God? You're not alone. From the very beginning, God's people have suffered great losses for the sake of, of loving God. And Jesus said that that would continue even up until his return. He says, just patiently possess your soul. Stay stalwart. Stay strong. Continue to, to press forwards. If God be for us, who can be against us? And so the Lord ministering there. And, and we'll pause uh, right there for for now, and I want to draw our attention similar on this thought of possessing your soul back to verse 6, where Jesus, once again, speaking about the temple, had said that, uh, that not one of these stones is going to be left uh, upon another. And it, it got me to thinking about the destruction of the temple. God allowed that temple to be destroyed, this glorious, beautiful temple that now took these decades to, to beautify, and suddenly now the Lord allows them to be destroyed. Why? And I believe it's because the temple was the typology of the true temple. You see, that temple that was standing was a picture of Jesus Christ himself. He is uh, the temple. You see, that, that temple was a building that had the Shekinah glory of God dwelling in, inside of it. But Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. He, he, he was the living temple. That was just a model temple. 
The living temple was Jesus Christ himself. And on his triumphal entry, that living temple came and presented himself to the nation. And the the nation rejected uh, the Messiah. You see, that temple was just a picture of the coming Messiah. And once the nation had rejected the true Messiah, why would the model remain standing when, when it just served to identify the true Messiah when he came. When the rejection of the Messiah happened, then the destruction of the temple became a, uh, an inevitability. But I want you to know that it was also a picture of, uh, of every single person Because every single one of us, we are buildings, we are temples now. And we either have the Shekinah glory of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, or we do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And when the nation rejected Jesus, they rejected the glory of God, and that temple now became just a building. It was a beautiful building, adorned, gold, marble, wonderful, but, but still it was absolutely destroyed. And you see, each and every one of us, we now, when we accept Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that, that we become living stones, that we're temples now. Know you not that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? And, and so you become a, a picture, you become a, a model now of the temple, of this building with the true and the living God's presence dwelling inside of you. In heaven, it says that we're living stones now. When you have the, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside, of you, and that in heaven we're going to be fitted together into the temple in heaven whose habitation will now be the Lord and his glory will be the light there in heaven and we will not need any light because we're going to be connected and fitted together in this, this new community called this living temple made out of believers. But what about those stones that don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of them. Those stones will be utterly cast aside in the same way that that temple, though beautiful, was absolutely destroyed. And it's a picture of the model of salvation. Christ came to rescue every single person. And it doesn't matter how beautiful the outside is, how much gold and adornment you have. It doesn't matter how you try and make yourself look good with good works and, uh, and try and be a good moral person and do kind things. You're just adorning the, uh, the temple. <laughs> but if it doesn't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as assuredly as that temple was destroyed to absolute annihilation, so also will you be eternally separated from God as well. But God wills that none should perish and that every single person shouldn't come. He's invited everybody to participate and he's willing to come into every single heart and, and to make you a, a temple of the, of the living God. And you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to reform yourself. You don't have to become worthy of it. All you have to do is ask. It's a free gift to anybody who will simply ask. But Jesus, when he came to the nation, he didn't force himself on the nation. He presented himself. 
And it was up to the nation to receive him and to establish him as their Messiah. And they could either receive him or reject him. And they chose rejection. And and when you reject salvation, you embrace destruction. It's that simple. And you are going to have the very same opportunity as the nation of Israel had because Jesus is presenting himself here today before you and you can either receive him now and become that living temple and be, have that eternal relationship or like the nation, you can reject him and reject his uh, offer of salvation and you then ultimately will suffer the consequences of that for after you breathe your last breath, that relationship will become eternal. And if you are connected to God, when you die, you will be connected to him for eternity. And if you are separated from God when you perish, then you also will be eternally separated. There will be no time. Today is the day of salvation, God says. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, the word of God tells us. And today, the Lord's arms are wide open, reaching out, presenting himself, for you to receive him. Joe's going to lead us. Pastor Joe's going to lead us in worship. And as we sing and as we pray and intercede, if, if you have never invited Jesus Christ into your heart, then I pray that right now, today, the start of this new year would be the day that you would change that forever and make the best decision that you've ever made in your entire life, and that's to simply invite Christ into your heart. I'm going to invite you to come down to the front, and whoever is here at the close of this, I will just simply lead you in a simple prayer of invitation. You're just going to invite Christ into your heart. He's made the offer he waits for you to take him up on that offer and invite. And if that's you this morning, then don't let anything keep you in your seat. You just stand up and come down. The enemy wants to keep you in your seat. He wants to keep you in the same condition you came in in, but Jesus came to bring life, and that life is here. And it's available. You just need to come and receive it. So if that's you this morning, you stand up, you come down to the front.